Good morning. Morning. This past week, I did some traveling on Sunday, flew out to uh, Austin, Texas, where on Monday and Tuesday, I had the, the very, very uh, fine privilege to meet with um, the leadership of 15 uh, Southern Baptist churches in uh, Texas. There was over 200 uh, uh, leadership, uh, uh, senior pastors, youth leaders, uh, um, worship coordinators, and so forth. And uh, I got to present uh, some on the God-shaped brain, and then I got to meet with them in small groups to talk about uh, the, how our beliefs change us and affect us. And what a what a beautiful and wonderful group of people! Um, true uh, compassion and, uh, for people, love for Lord, and wanting to help. And and I can tell you, they love this message. They just love this message. Um, they asked uh, multiple senior pastors asked if I'd be willing to come speak in their churches. And uh, so, um, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah. yeah. Should I go? Yeah. Are you guys, you guys going to come if I'm out of town on the weekend and still come to class? Okay. <laughs> because, you know, this, this class meeting and what we've done over the last three years has really enabled us to produce so many materials. For instance, our God and your brain DVD set. You know, we have brought, this came out in the middle of December and we've already shipped 5,000 of them. And we've getting, and, and the people who got the first ones in the first couple of weeks are emailing me. I just got some emails this week. Uh, we, we pass those out and now the friends we pass them to want some to pass out. Can you send me a hundred? Can you send me 50? Can you send me 25? And so we're getting, and we're just sending them out for free. And, uh, so it's, it's just fantastic what's happening. Um, we want to remind you about the Servant God book that came out recently, Loma Linda University Press. Uh, it's got 19 authors and it really, it's Servant God, the com, uh, the cosmic conflict of our God's trustworthiness. It's very well done book. And let's see. Oh, and the audio of the God-shaped brain is now out from um, Christian Audio. And uh, so that's available if you know people who are more audio learners than readers. Uh, it's uh, 8.4 hours, seven CDs. So that's now available. And uh, on a sadder note, um, Barbara Croson, one of our class members, mother passed away last night. And so we want to remember her and her family in our prayers today. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We thank you for your kingdom of love. We thank you for um, being our creator, our redeemer, and, and your plan to ultimately do away with pain, suffering, and death. We want to remember Barbara and her family today, as they are going through this time of grief, that you will comfort them and help them see past the pain to the day that all things will be restored to your original ideal. Be with us as we study today, that our minds will be enlightened and we will uh, experience your presence with us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number seven in the uh, quarterly discipleship. And the title this week is Jesus and the Social Outcasts. Jesus and the Social Outcasts. In the first two paragraphs, it says, a young woman, having come from an unbelievably sad and horrible background, which included two out-of-wedlock children by the time she was 15 years of Old, 15 years old, sat in prison awaiting trial for having murdered a social worker who had come to take away her baby, the only person whom, from whom she'd ever felt any love. Without a mother, father, husband, any relative, or even a friend, she's faced the forbidding future alone. Through the visits of a pastor, however, this hopeless young woman learned that despite all the mistakes, despite the desperateness of the situation, and despite whatever loomed on the horizon, Christ loved and forgave her. No matter how society viewed this young girl, she knew for herself God's eternal love. This social outcast discovered meaning and purpose in her life, in her Lord, whose love and acceptance transcended all societal norms and and mores, even the good ones. How do you view this young woman? 
how is, uh, how is it that God can know her sin, your sin, my sin, and still love us? Well, I mean, we feel that way about our kids. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, you feel that way about your kids. I was going to say, is there something about how God views our sin and us that if we shared that viewpoint, it would help us or enable us to love others who sin against us? What would that be? Think of it as an illness. Oh, I like where you're going with this. Think of it as an illness. So think about this woman. Why did this young woman murder the social worker? What led her to do it? What motivated her? Fear and selfishness. Fear and, and self. But the, 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 I like the fear aspect. And the, but, but she was murdering the social worker because the social worker was attacking her? No, taking no, the one thing she loved. Oh, okay. So there was this desperate fear, this desperate sense of, of, uh, of if I lose my baby, I will fall apart. This was a, a self-protective thing, but it was based on terrible, overwhelming fear and anxiety and fear of being alone and so forth. So where did the fear that this woman struggled against originate or come from? From where did it come, this fear that she had that overwhelmed her to the point that she killed another? Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden. So... In her particular individual case, when did this woman choose to have problems with fear, insecurity, doubt, and selfishness? She didn't notice this. We are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Scripture says. We are born with a condition of being that is deviant from God's design. It infects us. It alters our motives. It inflames the fear. It turns us against one another. So her behaviors, her actions, what did they reveal? A sickness, as you said, an illness, a sickness of heart, a heart lacking in love, a heart filled with fear and insecurity, which inevitably acts to, as Russell said, to protect self. So her sin, her behavior then, if you look at it through this lens, was a symptom of the real problem. It wasn't actually the problem. Any scripture to support this idea? How about Matthew 5? Jesus is speaking. He says, you say if you commit adultery... You commit sin. I say if you look at oh, someone or woman lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You say if you commit murder, you commit sin. See, bad behavior is what you're focusing on. But I say if you hate your brother in your heart. Jesus is saying that those bad behaviors are originating out of defective hearts. Is he not? Yeah, I think that's what he's saying. And this is the condition of all humans. Every one of us are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Every one of us has fears and insecurities. And and we defend against those fears and insecurities in different ways. This woman defended against her fear and insecurity by murdering someone who was trying to remove the child from her care. Other people defend against their fear and insecurities by relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, alcohol, drugs, um, workaholism, uh, abuse of other people, lots of ways, gambling, shopaholism. I mean, all these things that people do, they're, they're, they're trying to feel some, some insecurity to make themselves feel secure. Some people do it by actually um, working so hard and compiling a huge estate. And that makes them feel secure. They've got all this money in the bank to feel secure. But they're still fighting against this fear and insecurity. So where is the ultimate solution? And by the way, this is why the Bible says we must be reborn. Because there's something wrong with our first birth. We're born with motives contrary to God's kingdom, desire, methods, and and motives. So we have to have new motives born into the heart. That's the rebirth experience. So where, where do we find the solution? 
It's exactly right. And, and, and so the pastor who goes to visit this girl in prison not only teaches her cognitively about God, but what do you think it was experientially to have his compassion, his concern, his care, that she could tell he really was concerned about her and what was going to happen to her? Was this an expression of love experientially? You know, that, that you say, you know, he becomes the hands and feet of Jesus, so to speak, to communicate that love to her, not just give her a lecture about it. We understand God's law is the design upon which life was constructed, the protocols of love, then we realize deviations result in dysfunction and death, and also bad behaviors, sins, but the behaviors are merely those symptoms of the heart and mind out of balance with God's design. And so if you think if you have a child who is sick, they have a sickness, they're vomiting, diarrhea, um, coughing up uh, ugly crud and fever. Uh, when you when they have all these symptoms and they're whining and they're crying at night and they're irritable and they're no fun to be around. Anybody have children in that state? Child in that state? Sure we have. Sure we have. What is your attitude towards the child who's sick? Is there any hatred at all in your heart? Any dis- Do you despise the child in any way? Is there only compassion, only grace, only desire to heal and deliver? This is how God sees us when we are lying, cheating, murdering, adultering, and all these other things we're doing. He sees that they're sick. They're so sick. I could, if they would only let me in, I could heal them. Give them a new heart, right spirit. Take away their shame, their guilt. Take away their fear. God's forgiveness is not primarily judicial. It's restorative. It's regenerational. It's recreative. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. So that we're restored back into harmony with God's designs. So what are your thoughts about this idea? Yes, Russell. In that example, the parent would willingly take that child's sickness on on itself and and maybe use a stronger and better developed immune system to eradicate the sickness. Oh, I like that very much. Thank you, Russell, because that's exactly what Jesus did. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the purpose. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that he might pay our legal penalty and get us off death row. That's not what it says. So that we might become righteous. We might become transformed. We might be renewed. We might be healed. We might be set right. We might be put back in, in unity with God. It's all about reconciliation, regeneration, recreating us who are deviant from God's design back into harmony with him. I like that very much. Yes. One of the hardest kind of patients I ever have to deal with are people who are dead wrong about what they think is going on, and they are very strong-willed about it. I know I'm right. And it's really hard to get through to a person that you're misunderstanding this whole thing. This is really what would help you, and they won't do that because they just cannot see it any other way, and they're, and they're wrong, dead wrong. Yeah, my marijuana really helps me. <laughs> Or I, I, that, that, that's not as common as the next one. Oh, my two pots of coffee. I couldn't, I couldn't go, I couldn't function without them. I, I've been, I've been drinking two pots of coffee since I was 10. Like, that's not causing me any problems. <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah, they already know. So what I need is my Valium. Not, not, not to reduce those two cups of coffee. I mean, two pots of coffee. Yeah. Um, we have problems with people who commit sin against us because we see through human eyes that it's not fair, it's not right, they had no right to do it, it's unfair, and therefore, they need to be punished. They broke the rule, they broke the law, they didn't do what was right, they need to be punished. This is how we see things. 
Well, you know, when a child is sick and they cough up and, and they make a mess on the, on the carpet or whatever, um, it's not right. They shouldn't have done that. Did we take that attitude with them? But, but, but you could say in one way, it's not right. It's not right for them to be sick. It's not the right way, is it? God doesn't want them to be sick. It's not how God designed sickness. is not in the design. So you could say it's not right. But it's not this judicial, punitive wrong. We see it is wrong. But it's conditionally wrong. Their condition is wrong. How did Jesus treat those? How did Jesus tell us to treat those? Who do us wrong? Love them. What else? Restore. Restore them. What else? Pray for them. Pray for them. Yeah. Blessed are you, and pray for those who spitefully use you, and so forth. Go the second mile. Go the second mile with them. Turn the other. Forgive. Paul said, "If you people do you wrong, do them kindnesses to them. You'll heap burning coals on their head." Yeah. Why? Because they are sick, and they are dying in their sin dead in trespass and sin. And the only remedy for their condition, what's the remedy for sin? For selfishness and fear in the heart, what's the remedy? Love. <coughs> love and truth, right? So what is it when you love the person who's done you wrong other than revealing and administering the remedy? This is why God says to do this. It's not only good for you, it's a way to inoculate as far as possible, those who are so sick and hard-hearted still. It breaks down barriers. And you've all heard the stories where this has been done and people have been brought to conviction. Sunday's lesson, first two paragraphs. Society establishes hierarchies. Wealthy and well-educated people usually acquire the highest positions. Good moral citizens, the ordinary people, normally occupy the middle rung on the social ladder. That leaves the bottom dwellers, such as, the, such as prostitutes, substance abusers, criminals, homeless, and others. Uh, during Christ's time, that list also included lepers and tax collectors. Certainly there's societal hierarchy, which tends to, which tends to rank based on worldly values. But does God have a hierarchy? I heard somebody say no. Or is it only human societies that establish hierarchies? What makes one great in the kingdom of heaven? The one who serves the most. Hmm. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. Didn't Jesus say? Yeah. Love is what makes one great. The willingness to live in harmony with God's character and design. Um, this is from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Is there a hierarchy going here? I don't know if you look at the way Jesus dealt with people, the, the bottom dwellers, as you said, um, he was kindest to, and the church leaders he was harshest to. So if you imagine there's a hierarchy, the hard-hearted greed and self-centeredness and harshness of the leaders was a higher uh, hierarchy in the level of sin, judging by the way he dealt with them. 
Yes. Yeah, so as I, I really want to, I want to help us kind of maybe pull back the, the veil that we sometimes have been conditioned by this world to see through and see God's hierarchy. We get a hint of it here. We get a hint of it here. You know, when it talks about the law, what law do you think? The law of love. See, when you teach people to deviate from that, you're injuring and hurting. When you promote and live in harmony with that, you're healing and restoring. This is why you'll be great. You're in harmony. You see? Let's, let's, re- I'm going to read to you, um, from the Sermon on the Mount. He just finished his Sermon on the Mount. And, and, uh, with what I read to you before, here's the beginning of that sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely uh, say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Now I want you to, I want you to analyze that whole list of the Beatitudes there. What does Jesus say makes you blessed? Can you, can you categorize that list? Do you notice they have a common thread in this blessing? They realize their need. That, that's what strikes me. They're all humble enough to realize they have a need. That was the first, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who, who are meek. That, that's certainly part of it. You're going down the right trail, but it's broader than that. Just not recognizing the need. There's something that's common for all these things that result in us being blessed. Well, maybe this will help you. Did Jesus say, blessed are you when you pay your tithe? Blessed are you when you eat according to the law? Blessed are you when you don't lie, steal, murder, and commit adultery? Did he say that? No. So, contrast that list from the list Jesus gave is do you see a significant difference oh what who said that Jesus focused on the heart every one of these was a transformation blessed are those who are poor in spirit the humble heart you talk about blessed are those who mourn they they're sad in heart blessed are those who are meek blessed are those who hunger and thirsty desire it's a heart issue blessed are those who are merciful blessed are those who are pure in heart blessed are those who are peacemakers notice every one of these things are non-behavioral there's not a behavior a to-do list do this food go to church at this day turn the tv off by this time dress in this way uh, all this behavioral stuff that we focus on not one of them do you get blessed for you won't find Jesus say, blessed are you when you go to church on the right day. It's not in there. I'm not suggesting any of this is, is wrong to do. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that the blessing is heart transformational because the behaviors from the, from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. It, the, the connection is direct. God knows that when the heart is renewed, the behavior changes. But the church oftentimes focuses, and the Church of Christ Day certainly did, on the externals. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
This is where God is working to change the heart motives. And behavior certainly will change. Can we recreate and renew our own hearts? No. And that's one of the dangers. And so we're talking about this hierarchy thing. You notice we're blessed when we have a change of heart. We're also blessed when we are abused and mistreated by other people. It's not a behavior we do. It's an experience we go through. How is that a blessing? Of course, he did. there was a qualifier. Bless you when they say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Make sure that's, that's clear. In other words, when you're living in harmony with God's methods, presenting his true character, and then you're persecuted, then there's a blessing in that presentation. There are people who go out there and get themselves persecuted because they're antagonistic and they're actually misrepresenting God, but they're so offensive to everyone, they still get persecuted. Are we blessed when our hearts are divergent from the world? That's where a blessing is. When our hearts diverge from the worldly methods and we are hearts are in harmony with the king of love and the kingdom of love. So in this context, Jesus speaks of the law and those who live in harmony with God's laws. The law of love is designed for life, which they will be the ones who live in harmony with that, which will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we think about sin, are there degrees of sin, sins that offend God more than other sin? Yeah, I read this out of the book Steps to Christ recently, page 30. God does not regard all sin as equal in magnitude. There are degrees of guilt in his estimation as well as that of man. But however trifling this or that wrong act may seem, in the eyes of men, no sin is small in the sight of God. Man's judgment is partial and perfect, but God estimates all things as they really are. The drunkard is despised and is told that his sin will exclude him from heaven, while pride, selfishness, and covetousness too often go unrebuked. But these are the sins that are especially offensive to God, for they are contrary to the benevolence of his character, to that unselfish love that is the very atmosphere of the unfallen universe. He who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of his shame and poverty and his need of the grace of Christ, but pride feels no need, and so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessing he came to give. So what is the scale upon which God measures the severity of sin? How resistant it is to treatment. There you go. Treatment resistance. That's beautifully said. Treatment resistant sin is the worst. It's like an infection in the heart. With the treatment resistant staph aureus, the, the, the antibiotic resistant staph aureus. This is the worst, right? And this is the worst sin. That sin that becomes resistant to the movements of the Holy Spirit. See, as we're all born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We all have hearts filled with fear and selfishness, not of our choosing. We don't need to feel guilty for it any more than a baby born to HIV-infected parents born HIV-infected needs to feel bad for it. It's just a situation they were born with. Now, what do you do with it? Do we partake of remedy, experience transformation, renewal of heart? Or do we beat ourselves up for this condition we had no control over? Do we begin to work really hard to make ourselves appear like we're not sick. Imagine being HIV infected, and you know that uh, one of the problems is that you get carposis sarcoma, which are lesions on the skin if you're if you're if you go to the AIDS stage and you're not being treated. And so you've learned how to do really good makeup to cover up those lesions so people can't see. And you get pneumocystis uh, num- pneumoniae uh, uh, pneumonia, and you have these cough, but you take cough suppressants so no one will hear you cough. I mean, you're working really hard not to look sick. Does that really, in any way, heal you? How much of Christianity and religion is focused on looking, uh, working really hard not to look sick? 
God wants to actually heal and transform. And I'm going to tell you, there's this idea in Christianity that it's, there's no transformation, there's no regeneration, there's no victory now. The victory comes at the second coming. And right, you have to take care of now is the legal, the legal consequences. So you get that taken care of. This forgiveness is stamped by your name in heaven. And then when he comes, then you get victory. That is not the gospel. The gospel is he wants to give you a new heart and right spirit, write the law in your heart and mind. Regenerate us now that we have new motives, new principles. We can live free from the domination and control, not the experience of fear. We still may have fears, but we don't have to be, in, be controlled by them. I really like that. Treatment resistance. I put in there the more numb it makes you, but I like that. I like the treatment resistance very much. Isn't that why it's unpardonable? Yes, the only unpardonable sin is the sin for which we don't seek pardon. We don't seek reconciliation that we don't think we need any treatment for. So David's sin of adultery and murder was not as severe or as offensive in God's eyes as the church leader who judges someone for wearing jewelry or believing differently and therefore disfellowshipping them for violating the church standard. That is actually a more severe sin in God's eye than the murder and adultery. Because David repented. He was cured of the condition that led to murder and adultery. Now, do I offend anybody by saying that? So. <laughs> so this makes this, this type of, of pretentious piety makes God sick. And I, and I don't, I don't say that lightly. I'm going to give you a Bible verse to support me on this. This is Revelation 3, 16 to 18. The angel of the church of Laodicea writes, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation, which is who? Who is that? Okay, say it again. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, which is who? Okay, this is Jesus' words coming. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need things, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Let's kind of decode this. First off, how do we get lukewarmness? If you want lukewarm water... How do you get it? Mixture of hot and cold gives you lukewarm. So how do you get in religion, in Christianity, a mixture of hot and cold? Truth and lies together. Okay, truth and lies together, certainly, which I would suggest results in people who are religion uh, uh, on fire with their religion but have hearts that are cold. Look at the Pharisees in Christ's day. They were on fire for enforcing the law. They were hot, 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 and they were looking for any breaks and deviants. But look at their hearts. Their hearts were ice cold. And so they had this lukewarmness because on the outside they looked hot, but on the inside they were cold. I'm going to suggest to you that's what this is talking about. And then the word spit in this is actually the Greek word emeo, from which we get emesis or emetic. Emetic is a medicine that induces vomiting. It actually means nausea. You make me sick. You nauseate me, and I'm going to vomit you out. Not spit you out. Vomit you out. This, this pretentious piety, this hypocritical religious Phariseeism sickens God because it misrepresents him and his character. It makes him sick. Yes, Wendell. 
Another way you get lukewarm is you stay away from the heat long enough. But eventually, if you stay away from the heat long enough, you ultimately say, so you don't stay lukewarm. Yeah. So, but you're right. You're right. Yep. You, you, so somebody could be, and then they drift from the Lord and they end up lukewarm that way too. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, he's, he, this lukewarmness though makes him sick. Notice he, he, he counsels us to, to stop looking at self. Stop feeling righteous because you always go to church on the right day, eat the right foods, been baptized in the right way, haven't had sex before marriage, never smoked, never used drugs, never drank, or whatever else behavior you've done. Stop looking in the mirror and thinking you're so good because you've done all that stuff. You're not all that righteous. What he's saying, your heart is still, you were born infected, and you haven't taken the remedy, so the disease is still raging through you. Acknowledge it, admit it, seek remedy. And what's the remedy? Well, it says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. What's that symbolic of gold? In Bible symbolism, gold. Purity of character. Purity purity of character. Buy from me my character. Wear the right robe. Take off your filthy garments. Be renewed in heart. It could also be symbolic of God's pure love. His law is also represented as gold. Yes. Treading on thin ice here, but I'm struggling with the concept of, or I, I keep feeling this uh, thought that there is a spirit of tolerance that we need to have for all these things you're talking about. We look at others in our sinful hearts. We're looking at others and, oh, everybody's doing this wrong thing, that wrong thing, based on our belief system. So I... I understand God loves us no matter what, loves everybody all over everywhere. I want to understand how I can have this spirit of love, compassion, grace, all of those things. Because what I'm really feeling is that means I need to tolerate all the badness in the world, knowing full well that God loves all of those bad people better than I could ever imagine. But where is my standard that I can stand up for and... Follow through, other than just this term that I love everyone as God loves me. Would you have any difficulty if I was talking about cigarette smoking and God loves all these people who are cigarette smoking? And would you have a problem having where, where does your standard come on cigarette smoking? Do you have a problem with that? That's excellent. That's excellent. So that's, that's the easy one. Give me one. But it's the same thing. It's, it is exactly the same thing. When you understand God's design law as the protocols upon which life is constructed to operate, the smoking, laws of health, you see deviations, you're very clear where that's at and why, and, and you're gracious to those people, but even though God loves them, their continued smoking is still destroying them. He loves them as they die. He loves them as they get cancer. He loves them as they get COPD. He loves them as they ruin themselves, but his love doesn't change the damage and destruction that's happened to their bodies. Now, when we live in sin, deviating from God's design, and we're selfish and we're arrogant and we're egotistical and we, and we, and we steal and we exploit and all this stuff and then, and we, and we justify ourselves in our own mind and distort reality to keep from, from being responsible for all of our evil deeds, God loves us that whole time, but our characters are being warped. Our consciences are being seared. Our, our minds are being destroyed. And this is what Paul says, wait, they didn't think uh, the knowledge of God was worthwhile to retain, so they exchanged it for a lie, and their minds became depraved and futile. So, so you can see that they're destroying their own souls in this, and we love them while they're dying, but our love doesn't change the fact until they choose to reconcile with God and experience and partake of his presence where they can start living in harmony with his design. That's when they start healing. 
can you give practical examples of how I can apply that to something that is, is, is a little more gray than, than the black and white of smoking and the harm that it causes? We live in a world where uh, culturally a lot of things are changing that, that are unacceptable to us in our belief system. Yeah, let's, I'll give you one. Homosexuality and marriage. Is that a gray area? That one, I, I've been, why? It's not a difficult area. Our, our society is making it legal for homosexuals to marry. It's not a difficult area when you understand. The, it gets difficult because the church is infected with imperial Rome's idea of law. But forget the church. Let's talk about individuals trying to reach out to those. The church, the, the individuals in the church are infected with Roman concept of law. Okay? And so when you understand God's law, it's like cigarette smoking. Same thing. Or, um, the, the 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 state can legalize cigarette smoking. They can never pass a law to make it healthy. The state can legalize homosexual marriage. They can never make it holy. They can never make it sacred. They can never make it healthy. But that doesn't mean you can't love the individual. I agree about the law. Okay. How do I reach out to those people in a way that is not going to be offensive or patronizing or any of those other adjectives. I have family members that are homosexuals and I want to be able to reach these people in a way that is loving and compassionate and full of grace as Christ extends to me. So I'm looking for that practical application on how we deal with those things. We, the position that we take as a Seventh-day Adventist. I'll come back, but Wendell wants to say something. Go ahead. Christ never healed someone after they became holy. He, he was a ministering spirit with his love to those he came in contact with who were willing to be healed. And he healed, healed the ten lepers. How many came back and appreciated it? Only one. And so, <coughs> the issue of we're going to change them or whatever, but we live our loving lives in relationship to them. And if they should see they need to change something, they may ask help in some other method. But we do not. We do not help them go down the, the disease pathway, but we do not withhold our attention to them because they have behaviors that we do not appreciate. So, example, Romans chapter 14, we present the truth in love and we leave everyone free. Or everyone must be fully persuaded in their own mind. And so the practical application is we love them for who they are in the same way you would love a person who smokes with COPD, and you might periodically, if this was your brother or your dad, hey, it, 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 is there anything we do to help you quit that smoking? Because you know, you, you can't even walk a flight of stairs anymore. And, and, and you're waiting for those opportunities when they are aware that, they're, that and sin inevitably weighs in on the person and begins causing problems for them, inevitably. And they start suffering under the weight of it. And when that happens, it's opportunity to say, I love you, and this doesn't change my love for you. But it does change your health, your wellness, your peace, your joy, your happiness, your contentment. It, it, it potentially even could change your eternal destiny. Is there anything that we can do to help you go a different direction so you can be healthier and happier? And so we present the truth in love and we leave them free. It means we love them even if they deviate from the design, but we don't condone it or say, and say, and see, this would be the false message. <clears throat> see, the, uh, when I was at, um, that, that presentation in Harvard where they had all these different religions um, being presented, the person representing the Wiccans got up 
and talked about how she was there representing the Wiccans. And everybody applauded. Oh, so thankful. And I got up and said, hey, what I want to applaud is the, is the toleration that we have here that, that we, we grant everyone the freedom of conscience, that we wouldn't want to coerce anybody, that we leave everyone free to choose. But we should not e- uh, um, equate or think that freedom to choose one's beliefs is the same thing as all beliefs being equally healthy. They're not. They're not. So we present the truth in love, leave people free, understand they're free to believe anything they want, but we have clarity that all beliefs are not equally healthy, and some of those beliefs will destroy people. And that is what I would say would be the approach to take. Does that help? Yeah. Don't you feel that that our focus should be on becoming more like Jesus so that <coughs> comes out of us to these people is that loving, non-judgmental part of our heart instead of maybe some of the rules and regulations that we feel so strongly about. And I want to say, come back to again, and you know we've emphasized here for a year or more now, the differences between the, the design law of creator building things to operate upon and those imposed rules of a Roman dictator. And when we operate that God has these rules and God is the source of inflicted punishment for deviations from his law, we practice that and we see sin and we have this, this is wrong, we've got to do something about this. Rather than, this is sick, we've got to love them. Um, in the, in the lesson, it's talking about grace in the lesson. It's talking about grace in the lesson. Monday's lesson is talking about how did Jesus treat people, uh, that were in some of the grosser sins. And we remember the woman in adultery. Remember the people who brought him there and so forth and so on. Um, I'm going to read to you a story out of, um, what's so amazing about grace by Philip Yancey. It's on page 49. I read it several years ago, but I think it, it's worth reading again in this context. A young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just out, uh, just above Travis City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They, they ground her a few times, and she sees inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play because newspapers in Travis City report a lurid, in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit. She concludes that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a few months, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. She, Since she's underage, men pay premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headlines, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. 
Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night as she lies awake, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled on top of her coat. Something jolts a synapse of memory and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once with her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossoming trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave? She says to herself, and the pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad? Mom? It's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get in about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for the bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during the time she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over again, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires, and the asphalt steams. She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road, and the bus swerves. Every so often, a billboard, a sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. Oh, God. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in her compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepared her for what she sees. There in the concrete walls and plastic chair bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmothers and great-grandmothers to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. He stares out through the tears, quivering in his eyes like hot mercury, and begins to memorize speech. And she begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet's waiting for you at home. So what do you think about that story? Does it give us insight as how we're to treat people? Do we love like that? That story always gets me. Always gets me. Don't you think it powerfully reveals God's love to us and what he wants for us? And if you've been in that situation, he's waiting to have a party and 
There's going to be a big banquet one day for us, isn't there? Yeah. Yes. What I like about that story is it shows what matters. Shows what matters, doesn't it? Do we love or do we judge? Where is the balance between loving and intervening? Is there a difference between diagnosing and judging? Can you explain the difference between diagnosing and judging in the back? I have a question. How do you love a person that is in the act of breaking in your home and they are a most wanted murderer? Meet them with warm cup of frothy hot chocolate. How do we go with this love for our enemies? Uh, does the love of God in your heart rule out the protection of one's own self or family members? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I would say that you can't make a cookie-cutter rule for every circumstance and situation. You can't. I will tell you, um, would your answer and your desire to how you would act be different if the person breaking into your home was your firstborn son high on drugs? Would it be different than than the stranger? And why? What what would make the difference? What would you want to do if it was your firstborn son, even if he had a gun in his hand as he's breaking in? And I I, I don't re- I think the, I think the guy's name is Whitaker, but I can't remember for sure. Written a book. I met him personally at a at a book signing event. His uh, his son killed his wife and his daughter and shot him, but he survived. And his son went on trial for murder. And he testified in his son's defense and asked the jury and the judge to forgive his son. He forgave his son. Yes, would it be different? Would it be different if it was your son? And I remember reading in the news report about an 87-year-old African-American Christian woman, I believe she was African-American, coming out of a Walmart, and as she got in her car, some thug jumps in the car with her with a gun, and threatens her to kill her if she doesn't give him all his money, all her money. And she begins to talk to him about his soul. You know, I love you. I don't want you to be lost by doing this. I care about you. And what are you doing to yourself? And the guy put his gun down. They prayed together. Now, again, I can't say that that should be your plan if somebody breaks into your house. It depends on circumstance. And, and I would suggest if you're in touch with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom on how to act in that circumstance. You can't have a cookie-cutter rule. But I can tell you, you can have this as a cookie-cutter if you want it. I want a heart that's for that person. I want to see that person saved. That is not a natural heart. Do you remember the story of 13-year-old Marion and Barbie Fisher? When the gunman locked them all in there, 10 little girls in him, and he's about to shoot him, the oldest sister stands up and says, shoot me first. And let the other ones go. And he shot and killed her. And the sooner did she hit the ground than her 11-year-old sister Barbie stands up and says, shoot me next. Do you understand this kind of love is not natural to the human sinful heart? The natural desire is to justify why it's okay for us to kill another person. And there's there's rational and reasonable arguments to be made for that. I'm not going to say that it's irrational or unreasonable to make that. And you can make those arguments. You know, I'm going to kill this one person because I have 17 little kids here that I've got to protect, and it's my duty to protect them. 
when I was a military physician, I didn't have to go into combat, but we were still given pistols. Not to go and attack the enemy, to protect our patients. If they came in to kill our patients, we were to protect our patients. We were helpless. That was the, that was the, the mindset. Is that the right thing to do? Well, you know, I think this is Romans 14. Every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. You know, the person in that situation who, he, the, you could see that the tire, the dire straight. If I don't act, all these people are going to get killed. If I do act, this person gets killed. I don't want anybody to get killed. And sometimes in this world, there really is no good answer. And if you didn't act and 17 people that you were caring for gets killed, and perhaps you get taken to the POW, do you think that you would have peace? Well, I didn't kill them. Do you think you'd have less peace if you killed the one person who was going to kill the 17? I mean, which is the right answer? In this world of sin, there are circumstances that you will have to trust the Holy Spirit at that time to give you wisdom to handle. Can we make a cookie-cutter rule for all circumstances? But can we have a heart that wants to heal and redeem and, and reach everyone? Yes. And that's the goal, to have the right heart, not to have not to have the right cookie-cutter behavioral response that we can pull down our checklist and say, this is the right behavior for this circumstance. The behavior, I'm going to tell you, is not nearly as important as the right heart. Do you all agree or disagree with that? Amen. Yes. In uh, Isaiah 1, starting with verse 24, Therefore the Lord the Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your iniquities. I love this. I love this. Which, where, cite the reference again. That was Isaiah 1, starting verse 24 and 25. Isaiah 1, 24 and 25, when everybody talks about, Well, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. This is a text to shoot them at. Shoot them towards. They go read this text. He said, I will have vengeance. I will purge away your dross and purify you from your iniquities. God's vengeance is the same vengeance that doctors take on disease. Doctors take vengeance on disease, not on diseased patients. Do you hear that? And they take vengeance on disease by destroying the disease, thus saving the patient. God's vengeance is to destroy sin in the sinner, thus saving the sinner. That's the big difference, yes. I just got kind of where Sharon was going with that. I, mean, I think the dilemma, I mean, in a less dramatic example, okay, don't judge, whatever, and well, then you're so accepting and so loving of these people that may be doing something that you don't necessarily agree with, well, that appears as acceptance, and they think you accept them, but in, in your mind, you're not. So, yet, But then if you come out and clarify, oh, no, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I'm just being loving, then all of a sudden you judge them. But is there a difference between judging? And let's go back to the question we didn't discuss. Difference between judging and diagnosing. Because doctors judge, but we call it diagnosis, don't we? Isn't the diagnosis a judgment? So, so when you hear, though, diagnosis versus judgment, do you hear them the same? You're being judged. You're being diagnosed. Do you hear that the same? It's the motive. Well, one, the diagnosis is for the, for the purpose of healing. The judgment is for the purpose of many punishments. Yeah, but it's more than that. You're exactly right. It's more than, but you're exactly right. But let's add to it. Diagnosis is the articulation of what is usually understood to be the reality of the condition of the person. 
Unless the diagnosis is wrong. But if the diagnosis is right, okay. But usually understood, the diagnosis, this is your situation. This is your condition. This is what is going on with you. This is reality. Whereas judgment can often mean someone's opinion. Isn't that what it can often mean? It can often be arbitrary. My judgment is, I judge this to be. Just look at the Olympics coming up and the figure skating. You're going to get it. Okay, a lot of arbitrariness, a lot of subjectiveness, a lot of opinion. It's not reality; it's some its perception of reality. And so, this is why I think judgment comes across as something completely untrustworthy and no confidence. And 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 we we should fear it because who's the person who's going to judge me? Will they be on my side or are they going to be against me? Because that, depending on their attitude, then the judgment's going to swing. It won't really matter whether I'm sick or healthy. It will matter whether they're for or against me. Change the word from maybe judgment, let this down, let approval to disapproval. Yes. And, and yes, I think that's exactly right. How many, how many people who smoke cigarettes actually believe that it's healthy for them to do so? Extremely small, minute amount of people believe that. Everyone who does that pretty much knows it's unhealthy for them. The problem is there are some behaviors that society is now teaching people that it's healthy. Churches are being swung into some of this behavior that it's healthy. And the problem with that, of course, is, and I'm thinking primarily of homosexuality and homosexual relationships, is that that is even not a black and white issue. When you think about the genetic polymorphisms, and there are some individuals who are born as little females, but they have DNA of men, they're XY chromosomes, um, testicular feminization, so they're genetically male, but they're, they're phenotypically female, and they didn't do anything wrong any more than, than anybody else born of their condition. There's, uh, I think, 50 different types of intersex problems that go on. Some people have seven X chromosomes and one Y chromosome and, and, and much, much more types of things. So there's a lot of amb- And so if you think of sexual sexuality, let me ask you guys, what determines sexuality? Genetics? Genitalia? Mindset or heart attitude about oneself or behavior? You see, it is not crystal clear. And I could go into the epigenetic stuff about how when a, uh, when a, a fetal, when a fetus is born, when a fetus is developing, all fetuses start out female. Every man in this room at one time had a uterus and a vagina. In their early fetal development. And it was the hormones in fetal development that caused the uterus and the vagina to dissolve the labia to form a scrotum, the clitoris to form a penis. Under the, uh, under the, this is all happening uh, interior. All the doctors here will tell you. Isn't that right? In early fetal development. Okay? Early fetal development. This is what's happening. And so, uh, and then the brains of men and women are different. There are receptors that register testosterone, and if testosterone hits those receptors, it'll masculinize the, the brain. So that you process differently. And if those testosterone receptors are, are blocked, then there is not masculinization that comes along. Instead, you remain a feminine brain, because that's what you start out as feminine. Okay? Now, these, these, uh, uh, receptors have epigenetic, meaning uh, instructions that sit above the actual genes that tell those receptors how to express themselves. And they're supposed to be cleared off in an XY fetus so that those receptors are not there. I mean, those, those epigenetic instructions are not there so that the receptors work. And testosterone masculinizes. Sometimes those epigenetic methyl groups, basically what they are, don't get cleared properly. And so the male child has a feminized brain because testosterone can't do its work on those receptors. 
And sometimes it's the opposite. An XX chromosome fetus uh, shouldn't have those receptors, has those, and the, and the testosterone in the mother is enough to masculinize the brain, and the child is born with a masculinized male brain and a female body. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his, him or his parents? Neither. This is happening because all nature groans under the weight of sin. All nature groans. We're all, we're all defective from God's design. And there's partial penetrance on this because there's so many billions of neurons. So you can have an effeminate male who's very effeminate. We've seen it. Who's heterosexual? We can have a, a heterosexual woman who's a tomboy. Very masculine. Because you're heterosexual. Because there's partial penetrance on some of these things. And so the, the point I'm making to you is I don't know even one homosexual who believes that homosexuality, if they believe in God and they don't believe in evolution, uh, it, who believes homosexuality is part of God's design. Not one. I've talked to many homosexuals. Even None of them believe God designed it that way. So it's very fair to say, but God also didn't design blindness or deafness or spinal bifida or autism or cystic fibrosis or on, on, on the list goes. And, and I'm going to tell you, the problem with Christianity is we lack grace and compassion towards those we see deviant from us. You should thank your lucky stars that you weren't born homosexual or have homosexual tendencies. I, I've talked to, to people with these, these things. It is a miserable. They go through agony. They go through, they go through years of, of, of suicidal thoughts and, and self-flagellation and self-hate. I don't know their eternal destiny. It's not my place. Man looks on the outward appearance. Lord looks on the heart. But I do know it's my job to bring them to Christ. And Christ will then convict them and change them. It's not my job to convict and change them. Mary Magdala was brought to Christ as a prostitute. She was not required to clean up her life before she could come to Christ. Yes or no? Are, Are sinners required to become sinless before they go to Christ? No. Or we come to Christ while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And one of the problems with this particular sin, for some reason, the devil has tricked Christians into believing that we should demand that they give this up before we bring them to Christ. <clears throat> I think we can say this is deviant from God's design, clearly. <clears throat> I don't know your situation or your circumstance. I'm not going to judge your eternal destiny. It's not my place to judge. I'm going to love you and let Christ convict your heart, because it's not my place to convict your heart and how you should live. And I think that applies to every deviation from God's design that we see. Love them, educate them, leave them in the Holy Spirit's hands to convict and lead. And the very Bible that says homosexuals won't be in heaven says neither will liars. Or gluttons. Mm -hmm. Or gossips. So Tim, I don't have to give up my pneumonia before I take your antibiotic. Yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. You've got it exactly right. Yeah, give up the pneumonia. Cure yourself before you take the remedy. Okay. Yeah, that's well said. All right, let's close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that while we were yet sinners, while we were deviant from your design, we were defective, we're terminal, dead in our trespass and sin, you didn't abandon us. You didn't look down on us. You didn't criticize us. You didn't stone us. You didn't rain fire down from heaven on us. You sent Jesus to love us to win us, to heal us. Let us be like Jesus and like you, to love, to win, and to bring your healing truth. We pray in your holy name. Amen.